0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at
1: Bethelpbc.us.
0: Acts chapter 27, reading beginning in the 21st verse. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Verse 23 is the text for the morning, and particularly the phrase where Paul says, whose I am and whom I serve. Now, Acts chapter 27 is the remarkable account of Paul's exciting journey in which he was being transported by ship to Rome The imperial city in the first chapter of romans and the 15th verse paul indicates he had a desire early on to go to rome when he wrote the letter to the church at rome he said so as much as in me is i am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at rome also paul aspired to go to rome and then from there to go on down into spain We don't know that he ever made it to Spain, but he did make it to Rome. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we read, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in his spirit. When he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul, the evangelist, desires to go preach in Jerusalem. And by the way, he barely got out of Jerusalem with his life. There is some question as to whether it was truly God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. You know, Paul had not been called to preach to the Jews, but he was the apostle to the Gentiles. But being a Jew himself, he had a great burden for his native countrymen, for his kinsmen according to the flesh, and Paul made it happen where he went to Jerusalem. And he said, after I've gone to Jerusalem, I want to go to Rome. Just because Paul's letters are inspired doesn't mean that every decision he made during his lifetime was divinely inspired. And it is possible that God allowed him to go according to his own mind into Jerusalem. But after he'd been to Jerusalem and barely escaped with his life in Acts 23, 11, we read God's word to Paul. The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness at Rome. (laughs) So Paul now, as we come to Acts 27, has appealed to Caesar. Remember, he's been arrested. He has told Festus, I appeal my case to Caesar, and Festus said, to Caesar thou shalt go. And this is the account then of Paul's journey by ship from Jerusalem to Rome, Italy, across the Mediterranean Sea. And again, it is a dramatic and exciting account. John Newton, who was no stranger to sea travel himself, you may remember he wrote Amazing Grace. And he was once involved in the African slave trade. John Newton described Acts chapter 27 as one of the most thrilling, dramatic accounts of sea travel and a shipwreck that he had ever read. He was, again, no stranger to maritime adventures and to shipwrecks, but he said this is one of the most thrilling and dramatic accounts he'd ever read. We learn later in this chapter that there were 276 souls on board, and the bulk of these were probably prisoners. Paul himself was on his way to Rome, but he was going as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He had appealed to Caesar. Now, many of these other prisoners probably were going to be put to death, to be executed. But the bulk of the passengers were prisoners. And besides Paul and Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, we have no evidence that anyone else on board was a believer in Jesus Christ. They were all heathens or pagans. The pilot, the captain, the owner of the ship, the centurion named Julius, who had been entrusted, as you read in the third verse, with Paul's care, and no doubt the other prisoners. He was a centurion of Augustus's band, says Acts 27, verse 1. None of these people were Christians. And it seems to me that the whole point of Acts chapter 27, the first nine verses as it sets the stage for this sea voyage, is that it was a certain time of year in which sailing was dangerous. They shouldn't have probably been on the water. He says in Acts 27 verse 9 that the fast was now already passed, and that's a reference to the Day of Atonement, which happened in mid-September, and most people who lived in that day would tell you that From mid-September to mid-November was a time of tremendous storms, and of course, from mid-November to February, during the winter months, they certainly did not want to be on the open seas. So it was unadvisable that they should have been sailing on this occasion, but Paul was outvoted. In fact, notice in verse 9, now when much time was spent, when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them, and he said, Sirs, I perceive. And by the way, that word perceive means perceived by experience. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul was shipwrecked three times. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. Here's one of those times in Acts 27. So on two previous occasions, Paul has had experience on the high seas of a shipwreck. And so when he says, I perceive, he means by my experience. Now, he wasn't captain of a ship. He wasn't a professional expert sailor, but he had had enough personal experience when he knew that the season did not lend itself towards sea travel. So he said, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage. Somebody says, that's all you need is a naysayer at the beginning of an experience. But Paul says, I've learned by experience, this is probably not the time we need to be on the high seas not only of the lading in the ship, but also of our lives. That is, we are going forward in jeopardy of our lives. Verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. I mean, he's just a Christian preacher, and these are the expert sailors, and they say that it'll be fine. And sure enough, verse 13 says, as they set out on their voyage when the south wind blew softly, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing fence, they sailed close by Crete. And I can just see the centurion and the captain of the ship kind of looking at Paul, you know, saying, see, we know what we're doing. The south wind blew softly. But notice, no sooner have they traveled about 40, 30 or 40 miles. It says, but not long after, verse 14, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon, And that's a compound of a Greek and a Latin word, which gives us the idea of a northeasterner. It was a typhoon, Eurachlodon. That sounds scary in its own right, that name, doesn't it? This storm is a massive kind of hurricane or typhoon on the water. And Paul and the 275 other souls on board this ship are caught in a terrible storm. And we sang a hymn just a moment ago about the storms of life. And it's interesting how frequently sea travel and the idea of meeting with storms on the high seas comes up in Christian poetry and even in regular vernacular. You know, we may wish somebody smooth sailing on their journey. You say, well, I'm not sailing. I'm actually driving across country. I hope you have smooth sailing or fair skies. And we talk about reaching the harbor, attaining our destination. And of course, in our hymn history, we have a number of hymns that suggest this idea that life is a voyage on the high seas. We know, don't we, that in Bible times that sea travel was the primary means of international transportation. They didn't have airplanes. They uh, didn't have bridges, long bridges and roads where they could go from one country to the next. And so if a person wanted to travel long distances, they either had to go the long way around by foot or they had to travel by sea. And sea travel was very common in that day. And we sang that song, In the rifted rock I'm resting till the storms of life are past. Sometimes we sing uh, about life's experiences in terms of storms, like in the hymn, The Solid Rock. He speaks of the stormy gale, when we're tempest-tossed, when the whelming flood is upon us. All of that suggests this mariner's kind of metaphor. Well, on this occasion, a mighty storm arises. And I want you to notice in the text that we read this morning beginning in the 21st verse Paul the prisoner assumes command of the ship (laughs) it says in verse 20 the previous verse when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared I mean this storm was so dense that they could not even see the sun or the stars that's how they were being battered by the winds and the rain that was coming down. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Even the captain and the experienced crew lost hope that they would survive this voyage. And of course, Paul had told them, "Men, if we set out on this journey right now, if we don't harbor during the winter months and then sail later, and I perceive, by experience, that we will suffer much damage, not only of the ship and the lading, but of our own lives also. And sure enough, they've reached the point of hopelessness and abject despair, as all hope that we would be saved was taken away. But I want you to notice in verse 21 that after long abstinence, Nepal stayed quiet for a good while, but finally he can stay quiet no longer. I mean, chaos abounds. Panic has taken root in the heart of all of the prisoners on board. The centurion doesn't know what to do anymore. The pilot doesn't know what to do. The owner of the ship feels like it's a lost cause. And so Paul, the prisoner, becomes the captain of the ship. He assumes command. It said, after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me. Now, I've always found that just a bit amusing. It's the original see I told you so. Paul says you should have hearkened unto me. I doubt that he's saying this in the flesh, but he's saying I know what I was talking about. You see what he's about to tell them, he reminds them what he did tell them, and sure enough that's what's happened, and what he's about to tell them is going to assume more credibility if they'll just remember that he knew what he was talking about before. So here's a strange situation where the prisoner on board stands up and suddenly he's in the limelight and he takes over, he takes command, as it were. He says, sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not to have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you, I encourage you to be of good cheer. Now, I think that's an unbelievable imperative. That is, It's not credible that he would say cheer up because they are panic stricken. Chaos abounds. But you see, Paul has reason to say cheer up, be of good cheer. And by the time this story is ended in verse 36, it says, then they were all of good cheer and they took some meat. Now, this is in the midst of the storm. But you see, a time of crisis reveals true leadership. It's been said that a crisis does not make a person, but a crisis reveals what a person is made of. And on this occasion, in a time of crisis, Paul, the true leader on board, stands up and says, I told you that this would happen, but cheer up. Paul's speech on this occasion is a case study of calmness and composure in the storms of life. We learn from this passage what a difference one man's faith and courage can make not only for himself but on those around him in a time of crisis. His steady confidence in God in this extremely chaotic and hopeless scene stilled the terror in their hearts. Whether we're talking about the crew and the captain or his fellow passengers on board, I suggest that this man's calm demeanor And his focus on the true situation had a way of just calming everybody down. And I want to ask the question this morning, what was the reason for Paul's calm and composed demeanor? And I believe it's found in this 23rd verse in what I call Paul's confession of faith. He says, for there stood by me this night, the angel of God, God, whose I am, And whom I serve. Now, I think it's significant that God gave Paul a special assurance of his presence. He sent an angel to communicate with him. May I suggest, dear friends, that to be aware that God is with you is one of the great calming truths of the Word of God. How many of you have passed through the storms of life? Perhaps everything seemed to be going well, and then you went to the doctor. And suddenly it was discovered that you had some disease lurking beneath the surface that you were previously unaware of. And as you faced the tempest in your own emotions with that news, or perhaps you received a phone call that there had been an accident of some loved one, or perhaps some tragedy has suddenly struck your life. You said, just yesterday we were happy, but today we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you, my friends, have suddenly faced your own uroclodon, your own mighty storm, the typhoon at sea? And the question is, is it possible to be calm and composed? Is it possible to have a peace that passes all understanding? That's really the ultimate question, my friends, because there's not a one of us who won't pass through storms in our lives. There's not a one of you here this morning, but what you will have disappointments and setbacks and great trials and tribulations in life. And the question is, does it take control of us or are we able to stand to the fore and help others and encourage them as Paul did on this occasion? You see, soon the pilot and the captain and the fellow prisoners on board are going to learn that God has spared all of them on this voyage because of one man. I love verse 24 where it says, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. That's what the angel told him. Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, listen to this, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Paul, not only must you appear before Caesar. Now, that's what the angel told him. Paul, you're on your way to Rome. I've told you that you will bear testimony of me at Rome. And I've also given you the souls of all the men that are on board with you. None of them will be lost. And may I say that the reason that the captain and the sailors and the other passengers on board were spared on this occasion was because of the Apostle Paul and God's providence and purpose in his life. I preached a sermon some years back entitled, Blessed for the Sake of Others. How many times in the Bible have we run across people who said, I've learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. You know, God blesses us for many reasons, but ultimately my Every blessing that comes to us is for the sake of Jesus Christ. We're blessed for the sake of another. We're blessed for Jesus' sake, for Christ's sake. And how many times has God blessed me because of somebody else's prayer? Somebody prayed for me when I didn't have the sense to pray for myself, and God took care of me. I was blessed for the sake of another. And on this occasion, the captain and the crew and the passengers on board were spared because of one man. And that one man now stands before them and says, Sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. He's calm, he's composed. I believe, dear friends, that a Christian has reason to maintain calmness of soul and poise of spirit in every given set of circumstances in life. We have resources at our disposal, and the fact is that may be one of the most powerful. Examples, that may be one of the most powerful testimonies that you and I ever give to others is the way that we respond when storms and trials touch our lives. Now, by nature, it is common for people to panic, and I think that it's reasonable to say that when you get unexpected news, there will be a momentary, perhaps, you know, meltdown. While you feel that the rug's been pulled beneath your feet, you didn't expect it, and perhaps uh, it shakes you for the moment. But you see, once we realize who's in control, once we realize who's we are and whom we serve, once we realize that God is trustworthy, that truth should stabilize us. And when you find somebody who's stable and strong and courageous and focused in the midst of trials, it has an effect on those around him. And that's what we see with Paul's calm and composed demeanor on this occasion. Now, I want you to look at verse 23. Paul says, there stood by me this night the angel of God, God, whose I am. It doesn't mean I'm the angels, but the angel stood beside me. He's God's angel, and God is the one under consideration when he said, whose I am and whom I serve. I love this expression, whose I am and whom I serve. We see two parts to his confession of faith. It's easy just to read over this verse and not notice that little expression, whose I am and whom I serve. But I think there are some rich thoughts in here. And again, it explains the reason for Paul's calmness and composure on this occasion. Notice he speaks of both his inward life and his outward life. Whose I am, that's his inward life. And whom I serve, that's his outward life. We see that Paul has both a sense of being God's possession, whose I am, and a sense of his own life purpose, whom I serve. I am God's possession, therefore I have a life purpose. He knew who he was, whose I am, and he knew what he was supposed to do. This is what my life is to be focused on. He had a firm grasp on his identity and on his purpose and direction in life. May I say the sequence here is very important. You know, many young people today pass through a stage in their development that people have long called an identity crisis. And by the way, many of the older folks have never gotten over that. They still don't really understand who they are. You know, you see somebody that's comfortable in his or her own skin, somebody who knows who they are, and you say, well, that person is mature because... I can remember a time whenever I was, you know, trying to be this person or that person and I was searching for my identity. Sometimes I've encountered people who said, I'm trying to find myself. Well, I'll tell you the best place to find yourself, my friends, is in this book. You can find yourself in terms of your relationship with God, in terms of what the Lord has done for you. Every identity crisis can be resolved if we can ever come to this point and know that we belong to God, whose I am. You see, having that sense that I belong to God, that he owns me, that I am his possession, having a keen awareness of that fact gives us purpose and direction in our lives. The sequence again is crucial. We don't serve God in order to belong to God, but we belong to God. We're his first, and that's why we serve him. You see, this is what the doctrine of grace teaches. Grace teaches that God made us his people. He owns us. He claimed us. He acquired us. And because of that, that determines our activity in life. Our position should lead to our practice. Acquisition comes before activity. Sonship precedes service. Being comes before doing. Identity gives your life purpose. You say, what am I supposed to do in life? What is the significance of my life? You will find that when you first understand that you belong to God, whose I am, and then whom I serve. Now, I think God has many children in this world who belong to him, but they're not all serving him. And therefore, it's imperative upon us to understand first of all, that he has laid claim upon us, he owns me, I belong to him, and Paul was not hesitant to affirm to all of these pagans around him, I belong to God, whose I am, and therefore I serve him. I love something Elder Sonny Powell said one time in a sermon, and it struck me as being somewhat curious, but I've learned over the years to appreciate what he said. He said, it's not what belongs to me that brings me the greatest joy in life. It's the ones to whom I belong. He said, I belong to a little lady on a farm in Graham, Texas, and I belong to two sons and a daughter, and I belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and most of all, I belong to the Lord God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, I belong to him. And it's not what belongs to me that brings me great joy. It's the people to whom I belong. And again, it puzzled me for a little while, but I think I understand what he was saying. He's saying the same thing that Paul said here. He didn't say, who is my God? But he said, I am his child, whose I am. You see, it's one thing for us to think of what belongs to us. I've heard people say to me, my God is taking care of me, and I appreciate that. That's true. Jesus is my Savior. That's certainly valid and important to be able to say things like that. But you know, even before he belongs to me and he's mine, how wonderful it is to know that I belong to him and that I am his. You see, Song of Solomon puts this so sweetly when it says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am his first. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul prays that the church at Ephesus may know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we talk about God being our inheritance. We have an inheritance. We are heirs of God. But you see, that passage speaks not of our inheritance in him, but it speaks of his inheritance in us. Deuteronomy 32, 9 says it like this. The Lord's portion is his people. He owns us. He has claimed us. He has chosen us. He has made us. And may I say He owns us in more than one way. The Lord owns us by right of creation. That's for sure. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns every human being by right of creation. But I'll tell you there's a special sense in which God owns His children. We belong to Him. We are His possession, His priceless treasure and that special sense is in terms of his sovereign grace. Paul possessed the assurance that he belonged to God by electing grace. In Jeremiah 32 verse 37 God says they shall be my people and I will be their God. Notice first he says they will be my people. God has laid claim upon you and upon me. Before time ever began, God looked down through time and out of Adam's fallen humanity, he chose a people to be his own. It was his own sovereign purpose and pleasure to do so. He elected them and wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. My beloved, when he did that, he claimed us. As Isaiah chapter 44 verse 2 indicates, thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee. Notice, we're his by creation. We belong to him because he made us, but he goes forward to say, and which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeshuan, whom I have chosen. God chose us. He elected a people, and we are possessed by him as his own special people. I Am thy God, you are my people. But you know, I think Paul not only possesses the assurance that he belongs to God by sovereign election, but he believes that he belongs to God by redeeming grace as well. And perhaps he's thinking in similar terms as 1 Corinthians 6:19 indicates when he says, What? Know ye not that you are not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I would ask you today, my friends, what? Don't you know this? Know you not that you don't belong to yourself? Your life is not your own. Sometimes I hear people say things like, it's my life. I can do with it as I please. Well, actually, it's God's life. You're God's creation. And if you're a child of God, he has acquired you by the payment of a price, a precious price. He has gone to great lengths to purchase you and me, to redeem us. And you and I are not our own. It's not my mind to use as I want. These are not my eyes to feast on whatever I want to look at. This is not my voice to sing for my own glory and praise. This is not my body to be employed in doing what I want to do. You are not your own. In body or soul, you've been bought with a price. And what price was that? It's the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, received by tradition from the vain conversation of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Paul would say, you've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul said, I belong to him. I'm possessed by him. I'm his possession. He owns me. We belong to God, dear friends, like a bride belongs to the bridegroom. He can say that she is mine. And of course, she can say he is mine as well. We belong to God like a child belongs to a father. Children do not belong to the state. Children do not belong to the public. Children belong to the parents to whom God has given them. A child belongs to his father. My friends, you and I are the bride of Christ. You and I are the children of the heavenly father. We belong to him like a sheep belongs to the shepherd. The shepherd has laid claim upon the sheep. The sheep belongs. It's the possession of the shepherd. You say, well, I don't want to be anybody's possession, my friends. Well, my beloved, may I say, you're going to belong to somebody. You're going to belong to something. And the greatest sense of identity in life comes from knowing that I belong to the heavenly shepherd. I belong to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am his possession by right of purchase, not only by right of creation. Perhaps I've told you the story before of the little boy who was very poor, but he had learned from his grandpa to whittle. And one day he found a block of wood and he worked on that piece of wood for a period of weeks and months. And finally, he came up with his own little boat that he had shaped by his childhood skill. One day he took his little boat, he'd placed a mast on it and found some fabric from an old piece of cloth and he had tied a sail to it and he took it down to the lake in his neighborhood and he set it into the water. And a gust of wind came and filled the sails and the little boat began to prove that it was seaworthy and it sailed away. And the little fellow watched for the longest time with a mixture of pride in his creation and dismay that his boat was sailing away and finally when he could see it no longer he looked around to try to find it but the lake was just too big he couldn't go all the way around and he finally as the sun began to set despaired of ever finding it again and went home and mourned the loss of his boat but weeks later he was walking downtown one day and walking by a pawn shop he saw in the window the boat that he had carved And the little boy went in and he said, I want my boat. That's my boat. And the man said, no, sir, it's my boat. And the little boy said, I made it. I carved it myself. And I lost it when I put it to sea on its maiden voyage. And the man said, well, if you want it, you'll have to bring me $5 because that's the price on it. And the little boy had no money, but he went home and he scraped together nickels and dimes and he worked. He did odd jobs and tried to gather his money. And a couple of weeks later, he went back in and he laid his $5 on the counter and said, I want my boat. And the man gave him his boat back and the little fellow could be heard as he walked out of the pawn shop that day saying, little boat, you're double mine now. I've made you and I bought you. <laughs> And I want to tell you, my friends, that you belong to the Lord in a double way. He created you, He made you, but he's also paid a handsome price for your salvation, His own precious blood, and you belong to Him. Paul said, "Whose I am? We belong to Him like a sheep belongs to a shepherd. We belong to Him like a slave belongs to a master." I love Paul's words in Romans 1:1. Paul a bond slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. And that means I'm a bond slave. He owns me. I am not my own. I am someone else's property. May I remind you today, dear friends, you are the property of another. And that identity will give you direction and purpose in your life. Paul said, "Whose I am and whom I serve. And it will also give you calm composure in the midst of the storms of life, you can stand forth and say, I belong to God. You see, Paul on this occasion had a sense, he had a keen awareness of who he was, of his possession by God. And therefore, my beloved, he had peace in his heart because he belonged to God and he had committed his life to serving this God. Notice he had a keen sense of his purpose in life, whom I serve. Sometimes we sing the hymn by Fanny Crosby I am thine O Lord I'm your possession I belong to you I have heard thy voice when he spoke in regeneration I heard his call and I responded and it told thy love to me may I say we're his because of his amazing love we're his because of his sovereign mercy we're His because He set His love upon us. Then He proved His love when He plucked from His breast the darling of heaven and gave Him to be our sin bearer, our substitute on the cross. I am Thine, O Lord. But then notice Miss Crosby in the second verse of that hymn, Consecrate me now to Thy service, Lord. I wonder if she might have been thinking of this verse in Acts twenty-seven twenty-three when she wrote this song. Lord, I'm Yours, whose I am. But now whom I serve now after she says, I am thine, O Lord, in verse two, she says, Lord, help me to serve you better by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. Indeed, my beloved, a keen awareness and assurance of the fact that you are possessed by God, that you're his property will give you direction and purpose for your life. And I believe this is the essence of Christian living, that in all of its attitudes and actions, discipleship is supposed to be a manifestation outwardly of the inward reality that we are owned by God. You see, Paul was serving Jesus Christ right there on the ship. Wherever he went, every day that he lived, every morning that he awoke, every thought that he thought, every attitude he exhibited, he interpreted it in terms of the fact that I belong to God and I'm serving him as well. He had confidence. I believe that's why he could be so calm in the midst of the storm. He had confidence in the promise that Christ had made to his servants. In John 12:26, when he says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there will also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Did God honor Paul on this occasion? Yes, indeed. God gave him courage to stand up and speak up. And he gave him the souls of all those that were on board with him. And I want to say, if you belong to God this morning, if you can say whose I am, if your hope is in his grace, if you believe that he chose you before time began, and that Jesus purchased you on the cross of Calvary, then you should devote your life to serving him in this world. That's the sequence in the Bible. God says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt from the land of captivity. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Notice how the exhortation to service and to obedience is based on the relationship. I am your God, therefore you're to serve me. I've made you my own, therefore you're to do what I say. We see that sequence in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 4, Knowing brethren beloved, your election of God. You're the people of the living God. He chose you, he redeemed you, he drew you to himself. And then he says in verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You see, my beloved, it's always this order, this sequence in the Bible, that relationship comes before fellowship, that sonship comes before discipleship, that identity comes before purpose and direction. It's always in that sequence, and if you can understand that, my friends, you can understand the gospel message. Paul says, "Whose I am and whom I serve, and I want to say today, my friends, that we can glean two thoughts from this wonderful confession from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Number one, the awareness that you belong to God and are employed in serving. The Lord Jesus Christ will give you calm composure In the midst of whatever storm you might face in your life, you can be at peace. You can be steady. You can be rock solid. You see, Paul wasn't clinging to some driftwood of a human wish or some optical illusion. Paul was clinging to the rock of ages on this occasion. His hope was in the Lord. He knew who he was. I ask you today do you know who you are? Can you say, I'm a child of the King? My father is rich in houses and lands. You know, that may not be true for many of us in a material sense, but I think we can all say, I hope we can say today, it is true in a spiritual sense. My heavenly father is rich in houses and lands. I like to brag on my dad, don't you? On my heavenly father. He's rich in houses and lands. He holds the wealth of the world in his hands Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold, and I'm a child of the king. You see, my beloved, if that's true for you, then you don't have to be afraid of whatever might happen, because I belong to him, and I'm serving him. Every waking moment, I'm serving him. That will give you the kind of confident faith that will necessarily encourage and help others in their panic, in their dis And I want to say secondly and finally this morning, everyone will serve something in life. Everyone is serving something. You say, well, I don't serve anybody. You're serving something. It may be what Paul says in Romans sixteen eighteen: some serve their own bellies. You know, they serve their own appetites. They're doing whatever makes them happy they're serving something. Some serve mammon. They serve material possessions. They live for the dollar. They live for things. Many people serve themselves. They're in it for their own happiness. Somebody says, I just want to be happy in life. That's all I want is to be happy. Well, my friends, God has not promised us happiness happiness actually is an elusive prospect it's like trying to grasp the wind if you're seeking happiness it'll be like trying to grip oil it'll run through your fingers you can't it's it's elusive but i'll tell you if you'll pursue god happiness will come as a byproduct of that happiness in its own right is not a worthy goal but holiness is but in the midst in the path of holiness There is great joy and satisfaction and peace that comes into our life. You see, Paul knew who he was serving. He knew who he belonged to. He knew who he was committed to. And my beloved, if you're going to serve him today, you say, I have a hope that I belong to him, then you ought to serve him. You ought to commit yourself to serving him. That's going to take a volitional choice. You've got to Make a decision by your own will, like Joshua said in Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods that your father served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He made a choice. And the people said, well, we will too. And notice verse 22 of Joshua 24. He said, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen you the Lord. Now, God chose me. That's why I belong to him. I've chosen him. That's why I'm serving him. You see the balance of the gospel in this verse? Whose I am and whom I serve. My beloved, if you can say that today, you can say with the hymn writer, though the angry surges roll on my tempest driven soul. I am peaceful, for I know wildly, though the winds may blow, I have an anchor, safe and sure, that will evermore endure. Paul was anchored to the rock of ages. That's why he was peaceful in the midst of the storms of life. I say today, if you've not made the conscious, deliberate, willful decision to serve the Lord, Yet your hope is in the fact that you belong to him. You are his possession. He owns you. He has purchased you. He has done for you what you were incapable of doing for yourself. I will say that if you'll commit yourself to serving him, you too can find this peace that passes all understanding, this calmness and poise of spirit that is available to the people of God in this world.
1: Loved with everlasting love led by grace that love to know. Gracious Spirit from above, Thou hast taught me it is so, Oh, this full and perfect peace, O oh, this dress. Transport all divine in a love which cannot cease. I am his, and he is mine in a love which cannot cease. To be forever here, doubt and care and self-resign.